Good morning. It's good to be back with you guys. It's been a few weeks. Um, Caitlin and I had a wonderful time down in California over the last few weeks, getting to connect with people at Pepperdine's annual conference that they have not had the last couple of years, but um, had again. It was good to be able to connect with people there. The, the week after that, we were actually just down the road from Pepperdine at a retreat center, uh, participating in a retreat with the Spiritual Formation organization called Renovare, which is the uh, Latin word for renewal. Um, and that was a very refreshing time as well. The entire time we were there, it was sunny, it was warm, it was so, you know, California, right? And we got off the plane and got here and, and we just looked at each other and said, is it like really cold here? And I checked, it was like 60 degrees, not cold at all, totally normal, but, you know, we're, we're adjusting back to the Pacific Northwest. Many thanks to Jerry uh, a couple weeks ago uh, for sharing on Mother's Day. I was very blessed by your words and the message that you brought. Um, and thank you to, to you all for welcoming my friend Jared last Sunday. Uh, he told me that um, he enjoyed being here. He said, just mentioned how sweet you guys were to him. Uh, I mean, isn't he great? He's, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, again, I, I was very encouraged by the message that he brought. Very powerful, uh, challenging, and encouraging last Sunday from the Gospel of Luke. So he and, and, and Missio Church up in North Seattle are doing some really great stuff. I'm grateful to have friends and, and partners like this in the Gospel here in our area. And so this Sunday, um, you're, you're stuck with me again. I'm back. Uh, and so I want to continue the theme that we have been exploring a few weeks before I left. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is where we are headed today. Uh, so, so we started looking through the book of Acts uh, several weeks ago, uh, thinking about the dwelling passage that we have. And, and there's this moment in there where as they're walking along in the road, Jesus begins to describe to them all the scriptures concerning himself, right? And, and, and that, that line has always just made me wonder, well, what are those scriptures that he's explaining to them? What, what are these things? And the gospel of Luke, the book of Luke, does not tell us which scriptures it is that Jesus was unpacking and explaining to them. But the book of Acts which is volume two by the same author as the book of Luke. The book of Acts does contain tons of examples, not of Jesus describing and teaching these things to the disciples, but of the disciples describing and explaining these things to others. And where did the disciples hear it? Well, they heard it from Jesus, right? And so, so Luke does, in the book of Acts, show us some of these passages, some of these Old Testament passages that later on the disciples begin to use to proclaim resurrection to the people around them. So uh, in the first few chapters of Acts, Peter is the primary spokesperson, right? We looked at these, Acts chapter 2, he preaches on the day of Pentecost, and then in Acts chapter 3, he begins to proclaim to another group of Jews. And all along, he is citing from, from all kinds of places, the prophets, the Psalms, the stories of, of their forefathers, so on and so forth. 
And Peter is kind of the the primary preacher in these first few chapters. But as the book of Acts continues, the cast of characters expands and grows. In chapter 6, we're introduced to someone named Stephen. Stephen. And Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He's described as a man full of God's grace and power. He's even described with a face like the face of an angel. So Luke goes all out as he introduces us to this guy named Stephen, right? Uh, Luke thinks highly of this fellow. And so we meet him in chapter 6, and then in chapter 7, Stephen begins to proclaim. In fact, Stephen makes what is the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts. It is really the, almost the entire chapter of chapter 7 that he preaches. And so this is what we're going to be looking at today. But before we read Stephen's speech, I want to give at least two pieces of background info. Uh, that'll just help us kind of understand it a bit more. Two pieces of background. First of all, despite having the longest speech in the book of Acts, Stephen had not been appointed in the early church as a teacher or preacher or anything like that. Uh, He was initially appointed to be a waiter. He was initially appointed to to wait on tables. You see, at at that time, when the church would gather together, they would eat. They would eat together. Uh, And and whenever they would pass out the food, people would get food, and they would eat, and they would share their time together. They gathered around tables often. But there were some people who were getting overlooked when they passed out the food. There were some people who were missing out on it. And so the early church appointed seven people to help oversee this process of distributing the food. Uh, And Stephen was one of those seven who was appointed to wait on tables to make sure that everyone got to eat whenever they gathered together. And I think this says a whole lot about the character of Stephen. Though he has quite a lot to say, Stephen is a servant. He's someone who serves, takes care of people. The second thing I want to say about him is that this lengthy speech that he gives in Acts chapter 7 is in response to something. He's responding to some accusations and questions that have been thrown at him. You see, some of the Jews accused Stephen of speaking against Moses, against the temple, and against God himself. And so they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin. This is the very same leader community who Jesus was brought to and then was sentenced to be crucified by And so they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin. They made these accusations about him. He's spoken against Moses, the temple, and God. And then the high priest, having heard this, looks at Stephen and says, well, are these charges true? You know, have you spoken against Moses, the temple, and God? And, you know, Stephen could have very simply just said, 
No, I didn't say anything like that. You know, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe he would have gotten to go. But instead, Stephen launches into the grand story of God and God's people. It is long, but it's worth listening to. So, so we're going to read his whole speech. Stephen is preaching this morning. I'll have a few things to say afterwards, but Stephen is the one who's preaching. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Stephen responds, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs, who would eventually become the twelve tribes of Israel. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, right, one of the, one of the twelve, one of their brothers, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people 
the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear, did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, and I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent out to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt as the Red Sea at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them. He gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. See, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses 
made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the sermon, and the life of your servant, Stephen. God, as we reflect on the words of your scripture today, I pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, Stephen has already preached today's sermon. It was a good one. I'll just say a few things about it. Um, So first, what are the scriptures that he is drawing from as he proclaims Jesus to the Sanhedrin? Right? That's one of the questions we're asking throughout, throughout all of these, is, is as the disciples begin to proclaim this, what scriptures are they pulling from? And then after that, I want to ask the same two questions we've asked other times, and that is, how is this sermon an exhortation to us, but also an example for us? An exhortation to us, right? What, what do we hear? If Stephen were preaching to us here today, right, what, what, what would that exhortation be to us? But also, the sermon is an example for us. How can we learn from Stephen as he proclaims? Because we too are people called to proclaim Jesus. 
to proclaim the resurrection wherever we go. So that's, that's where we're headed here in the next few moments. So, so first, what scriptures does Stephen draw from as he preaches? Perhaps a better question is, what scriptures does he not pull from as he preaches, right? I mean, he, in, in his sermon that we just read, Stephen is retelling the story of Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Along with that, he's quoting from Amos and quoting from Isaiah. I mean, he is telling the whole story. He's telling the whole story of Scripture. But, but he's not just retelling the story. Remember, Stephen is responding to these accusations that have been brought against him. See, they've, they've said that he spoke against God's prophet, Moses. They said that he had spoken against God's place, the temple. And they said that he had spoken against God himself. And this is exactly the shape that his, his sermon takes. He is responding precisely to those accusations. So let's look a little bit at each of these. The bulk of his speech, verses 2 through 43, right? That's most of his speech. It focuses on the call of God's prophets, who they had accused him of speaking against. But he just tells the story of, of God's prophets who were called and then their reception among God's people. And there's this great theme that emerges as Stephen tells the story Throughout Israel's history, God has constantly sent people to speak on God's behalf. And God's people have constantly rejected them. God constantly speaks to his people through the prophets. And God's people constantly reject those prophets, persecuting them, killing them. They don't want to hear what God has to say. So Stephen begins with Abraham and how God called him, blessed him, promised him a great land and descendants. But very quickly, Stephen points out that in verse 6, that Abraham and his descendants would be strangers in a strange land. That they would come to be enslaved and mistreated by the people there. You see, though God has called Abraham to be his person among the people of the earth, the people of the earth would reject Abraham and his descendants. He's called and sent by God, but the world will not receive him. They will be mistreated and enslaved. So then Stephen moves down the line to Joseph, right? Joseph, in verse 9, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, so they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. All right, well, this is happening again. Joseph receives visions and dreams from God, but he was rejected by his brothers. They sold him into slavery, sent him away. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. And the story goes on, right? The whole family ends up moving to Egypt. And, and though, you know, through Joseph, through God's blessing on Joseph's life, uh, he becomes very influential, right? And they become a great blessing to Egypt. But after a few generations, 
there comes to be a Pharaoh who doesn't think much of Joseph, doesn't remember Joseph, and so the people end up enslaved. And the story uh, picks up with Moses, who stands up to injustice when he sees this Hebrew slave being mistreated by an Egyptian, and then later tries to break up a fight among the, the Israelites themselves. But they reject him. They say, who made you ruler and judge over us? Right? He's, he's sent by God, but they, they reject him. So Moses flees for some time. God sends him back to Egypt. We know this story. Many of us know this story. Moses goes back. God works powerfully through him. He delivers the people from Egypt. Right? They have this exodus. That's why it's called the book of Exodus. Exodus out of Egypt. They're freed. Moses leaves them out of slavery toward Mount Sinai, where he goes up and receives the covenant of God. But once more, in verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts, and they turned back to Egypt. Do you see this theme over and over and over again that Stephen is highlighting? Right? They had accused Stephen of speaking against God's prophet. And so Stephen traces this long history of God's prophets from Abraham to Joseph to Moses and how every single one of them had been rejected by God's people. Now, the next accusation they had brought against Stephen is that, well, they said he had spoken against God's place, right? He had spoken against God's temple, and so he speaks to that as well. In verse 44, he traces a bit more of history, beginning with the tabernacle, which God had commanded Moses to, to build, had given Moses to build this tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, we, we don't use this word. What, what, what does this mean? It's just a big tent. Tabernacle is a portable tent that, that, that goes with them. Right? God gave this to Moses as a sign while they're traveling through the wilderness that God is traveling with them in the wilderness. That's what the tabernacle is. It's, it's not a building, it's a tent. It's God on the move with God's people on the move. And that tabernacle was with them as they came into the land and it remained in the land until the time of David who decided to build a permanent structure. I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a house for God to live in. But then it was actually his son Solomon who built it. And as Stephen traces this history, he says God told the people to make the tabernacle, but it was David's idea to make the temple. And then Solomon's the one who did it. He seems to be implying that God never told his people to build a temple. Why, why are you defending the temple? God never had anything to do with that. The sign of God's presence was not meant to be a temple that people had to come to. The sign of his presence was a tent that went with the people. This is a theme that Paul later on expounds on in 1 Corinthians when he describes our bodies as a temple for the Holy Spirit, right? The, the presence of God travels with us 
in us. It's exactly what it was in the beginning. So Stephen brings this home by quoting from Isaiah 66. We see this in verse 49. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. So once more, he's responding to their accusations. They accused him of speaking against God's place, God's temple. But, but he turns the tables by saying, actually, no, you're the ones who've misunderstood God's place. It was never meant to be a temple. God is bigger than that. God's beyond all of that. Now, the final accusation that they've brought against him is, is the biggest of all. They accused Stephen of speaking against God himself. But Stephen responds to this accusation all throughout his sermon. Not really in what he says, so much as how he says it. See, notice throughout this whole chapter, Stephen does not merely tell the story of God's prophets or God's place, but constantly Stephen is telling the story of God himself. He's telling the story of God. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, none of those guys are the main character in the story Stephen tells. God is the main character. God is the one who is acting. God is the one who's doing. I mean, just look. Verse 2, God appeared to Abraham. Verse 3, God said, go from this place. Verse 4, God sent him. Verse 5, God promised him. Verse 6, God spoke to him. Need I go on? Every single verse, it's God who's doing the doing. Not anyone else. To keep going. With Joseph in verse 9, God was with him and rescued him. With Moses in verse 25, God was using him to rescue them. And then again in verse 35, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Over and over and over again, Stephen makes it clear, I'm not speaking against God. I'm speaking for God. This is not just a story of people and places. This is the story of God and God's actions in the world. God is the one doing the doing. So Stephen has spoken to these accusations that were brought against him. He retraces the story from Abraham on, and, and this is what he says. Have I spoken against God's prophets? No. But God has constantly sent prophets, and they've constantly been rejected. Have I spoken against God's place? No. But God never intended to be in, a, in this restricted place built by human hands. Have I spoken against God? No. That's not even possible. God carries his own story every step of the way. And perhaps Stephen could have ended here. That would have been a great sermon. But he goes on. In verses 51 to 53, he brings this long 
history to his present day. He looks around at the Sanhedrin before him, and he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like all those ancestors that I just told you about. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Now you've betrayed and murdered him. See, in these final verses, he turns the tables on them. He's not only given a defense for himself, he's made his own accusation. He says, I've not spoken against God's prophet, but you have killed the one that the prophets foretold. I have not spoken against God's place, but you have resisted the movement of the Holy Spirit and, and tried so hard to contain and manage the presence of God to make it comfortable for yourself. I've not spoken against God, but you have all ignored him and disobeyed what he has clearly spoken. And this is where Stephen's sermon ends. They are not too pleased. They become furious. The description of this is almost comical to me. They put their hands over their ears and start yelling at the top of their voices like a child throwing a temper tantrum of some kind. I can't hear you, right? Seems like what they're doing. They drag him out and they stone him to death. And Stephen becomes the very first Christian martyr. The very first person to die in the name of Jesus. What a sermon. And what a story. So as we close, I just want to consider those two things. How is this sermon an exhortation to us? And how is it an example for us? Well, first, an exhortation to us, as Stephen retraces the story of God, speaking through his people, moving among them, I think that we are invited to consider how it is that we respond to God's word and God's presence. How do we respond to God's word and God's presence? Right, God's word came through the prophets, but the prophets were constantly rejected because the people did not like what they heard. Stephen himself became another one of these rejected prophets. So how do we respond when the word of God convicts us? How do we respond when we don't like what God has said? Do we become defensive, trying to justify ourselves? Well, I didn't mean that, or well, it's, it's okay because. Or maybe we, we just point fingers at other people. 
Stephen's speech invites us to consider the ways in which we have been a stiff-necked people. With hard hearts and closed ears. What does it look like for us to be open to having our heads turned? To moving in a different direction than maybe feels comfortable or safe? What does it look like for us to listen to what God is saying? And to have hearts that are soft enough to be shaped by his word. What does that look like for us? How do we respond to God's presence? Will we reject it when we felt challenged? Or will we be humble enough to respond? And then there's God's presence, right? There's God's presence. They loved their temple because it was over there. They could go to it when they wanted, but it was over there. But that's not how God is, is meant to be. That's not the sign God has given us. God, God gave us a tent. God's not over there. He's right here. He's right here. We cannot manage the presence of God. We cannot compartmentalize the Spirit of God. Wherever you go, God's there. How will we respond to that? Will we even become aware of that? Tomorrow morning, whatever you do on Monday morning, God's there. He's there with you. You're showing up at work. You're sleeping in. I don't know. God is there. He's not just in this building or at this time on Sunday. His presence cannot be managed. God is with us. He is with us. How do we respond to God's word and God's presence? This is the exhortation to us. But then there's also the example Stephen has proclaimed the word of God, and he has given us an example. I think there are a few things that, that we can learn from him as we seek to be people who proclaim the resurrection. One of them is simply being a people who know the story of God, right? Not just books and chapters and verses, not just commands here and there, but, but man, this whole thing is one story. Stephen was able to trace most of it. Can we be a people who know the story and share it? Another thing that he does is he doesn't just tell the story, right? He, he says, hey, here's what God has done. It's not just a story. It's the action of God. Can we be a people who, like Stephen, have eyes to see what God is doing? What he has done and what he's doing still. Can we tell that story? God's doing this. Let me tell you what God is up to. Doing that humbly, knowing that we often don't get it right. But can we at least look for the presence of God, the activity of God around us? But here's the puzzling thing about Stephen's story, right? The, the name of this sort of sermon series is Proclaiming Resurrection. Well, 
what? Stephen never really said anything about the resurrection. But he absolutely proclaimed it. Before this sermon, what was he doing? He was serving tables. He was taking care of people. He was making himself a little lower. That's the story of the gospel. That is proclaiming resurrection. And then after the sermon, what was he doing? He was giving his very life. And I love this. As they begin to pick up stones to throw at him, he just says, look, I see heaven opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Jesus is not just a story. He's not just someone who, who came before, someone who was, you know, here in Jerusalem a few weeks ago. He is alive now. And he is with God. To believe that, to see that, to know this to be true, changes how we live and what we say and how we say it. It's because of that that just like Jesus, Stephen can pray for the forgiveness of those who are picking up and throwing stones at him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And just like Jesus, Stephen could say, Lord Jesus, receive my Spirit. Remember, Jesus prayed from the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. We are a people who proclaim resurrection. When, like Stephen, we serve, but also whenever we shout the truth, Jesus is alive. I'm not afraid of whatever might come because Jesus is greater than all of those things. This is what it is to believe. Now, Stephen, on all accounts, doesn't look like a very successful person, right? He's waiting on tables and then he gets killed. That's, that's not any success story I've ever seen on TV or, or read about in the news. But in the kingdom of God, we're not, we're not looking for success, God is looking for faithfulness. It's not about success, however we might define it. Are we being faithful to God? Are we being faithful to what God has called us to? If we can be faithful, knowing that Jesus is alive and living from that place, we can be a people who proclaim resurrection. Amen.